I'm so happy to have two guests today who are the director writers, James Lebrecht and Nicole Newham. Thank you guys so much for chatting today about your film, which today is Friday, March 27th. Your film came out 48 hours ago, right? Just about. I guess that's right. You have this date on your calendar. The film's going to get out. You had a Sundance premiere, but what is it like now that the film is out and the world is just discovering it for the first time? I mean, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced, actually, you know, because I've never released a film on Netflix globally. So just sort of seeing responses from people coming in from all over the world and seeing, you know, both the response within the disability community and then also from beyond it, it's just like, it's it's completely extraordinary. What about for you, Jim? Uh, well, you know, it, there's a bunch of different, it's like, I just like finally got over to look at Facebook a few minutes ago and I have like 27 friend requests. <laughs> it's like, but um, you know, it's really the same thing. I've just been getting so many wonderful, uh, you know, messages from people that I've known actually throughout my life. And, um, and um, it's, it's just been, um, it's just been remarkable to really experience this kind of wonderful response and, and how fired up people are in the disabled community. Okay. Um, you know, everybody's like, I got, you know, <laughs> everybody wants to throw a viewing party today or tomorrow. You know, it's like they're really excited. So that makes me feel so good. That's awesome. For the listener, just for some context, both of you have had an incredible journey as artists and filmmakers and sound artists. Um, and maybe I'll start with you, Nicole. Can you just a little background on the type of work you were doing before you guys met? Because you guys have your own independent lives separately, but then obviously you come together for this project. So Nicole, how do you describe kind of the past handful of years of the work that you've been up to? Well, you know, I, I interestingly, I, I came out to San Francisco um, partially because I had seen the the Times of Harvey Milk, that documentary, mm-hmm. um, and I completely fell in love with it because I realized it had opened my eyes up to a community and to, to people in a way that was life-altering. And also it introduced me to this movement, and I came away from that film with this idea that there's this incredible social fabric in the Bay Area. Um, and I think all those things, you know, we kind of tried to inject into Crip Camp a bit. But anyway, I came out here, went to grad school here and have stayed and worked in documentary for 25 years. And for the last 15 years, I've been working on different independent feature documentary projects um, in between a lot of other uh, film work. Um, and those three films, the last three films I made before Crip Camp, Jim was the sound designer and and mixer on. But my films have been... Um, you know, have treated themes that you see in Crip Camp. Um, the Rape of Europa was definitely kind of looking at history through a different lens. Um, and then I've made two films about young people who are activists sort of fi- fighting social injustice, um, the revolutionary optimists in a film called Sentenced Home. Amazing. And for you, Jim, y- your story is amazing because I- I've known you, I've known of a little bit of your story, but then you got like front and center with Crip Camp because it's so intertwined with your own personal journey. But maybe just to kind of connect the dots of how you met Nicole, can you kind of describe your work, obviously, in the local theater community and then also Berkeley Sound Artists? Um, I had come up to um, to Berkeley in, in the fall of 1978 to work at the Berkeley Repertory Theater. So right out of college, you know, what a score. And I spent a little over 10 years as their resident sound designer, but became aware of the Saul Zantz Film Center 
uh, in Berkeley and uh, felt like I wanted to move into film at some point. And, you know, I'd get a couple of comp tickets to some of the sound supervisors. Why don't you come down and see a show on me and can we get a beer afterwards and started meeting folks. So I was fortunate enough to um, really work my way up from intern to to sound designer and and did a little bit of you know mixer uh, for them, but then started Berkeley Sound Artists in 1970. Uh, no, yeah, 1996, <laughs> and um, and really quickly found a home in the documentary community. Yeah, that um, that it was a community that I uh, I just kind of liked because. Um, I felt like with my theater background, I could really kind of bring in this sense of really kind of holistically looking at a whole film and that it wasn't something that we were doing on the side while we were doing feature films or anything, but really could kind of pay that kind of tight attention to. And it, and it, you know, it kind of, it kind of worked out in regards that I've been really fortunate enough to work with, you know, the barriers documentary community is just, remarkable and so many of them have had offices in the what we call the fantasy building if you uh, you know um, it's known in the bay area because of Saul and his uh, association with fantasy records and such but um about you know uh 15 years ago or so was the first time i worked with nicole and we um sentenced home and i just freaking loved that film and then you know i was fortunate that i guess i passed the audition didn't i nicole and, uh, <laughs> you did <laughs> my wife of Europa was not very long after that actually yeah so and um and and then the revolutionary optimist and um anyway um so that's kind of our background together but um i had had this growing feeling after working with all these wonderful filmmakers that documentary film was I, I know the power of documentary film and I know how, how singular it is in regards to you know bringing us inside that no other medium really can I mean I think there's radio journalism that comes close and such but and that um, I was seeing some projects that dealt with disability but nothing that I really felt was really quite the the film that really showed the experience of people with disabilities that I felt like it was always kind of like this outside view and that that we were never really kind of getting to what the person the persons the people the human beings it was always about this struggle or this fight over here and it never allowed really to talk about the deeper issues around you know, love and sexuality and and acceptance. Um, and I knew there was some kind of a story here related to it about this exodus of people from the New York area, people that I knew from Camp Jeanette, um, out to Berkeley. And shortly after Nicole had wrapped uh, Revolutionary Optimist, we had lunch together. And I'm because I love her work. I love her. Like there are films that need to be made about disability. And I think we need to see a film about, you know, uh, um, you know, able-bodied uh, siblings of disabled people and yada, yada. And, oh yeah, I'd like to see, it would be really great to make a film about my summer camp. 
I wanted to be part of the world, but I didn't see anyone like me in it. I hear about a summer camp for the handicapped run by hippies. Somebody said, you probably will smoke dope with the counselors. And I'm like, sign me up. Come to Camp Jeanette and find yourself. There I was. I was at Woodstock. You wouldn't be picked to be on the team back home. But at Jeanette, you had to go up to back. Even when we were that young, we helped empower each other. It was allowing us to recognize that the status quo is not what it needed to be. The world always wants us dead. We live with that reality. At the time, so many kids just like me were being sent to institutions. It was just a continual struggle. Most disabled people, like myself, are unable to use public transportation. We needed a civil rights law of our own. I was so happy to be just a fly on the wall to experience the experience that you had when you were at camp. To me, it was a story that I would never be exposed to because it's it was so um, a moment in time that kind of came and went. And without the foresight that you both had, I think it would have just been kind of something that uh, in the context of the whole disability movement, it I didn't realize the role that it played. And I was so happy. I mean, you kind of bookend the film coming, you know, when you go back and revisit the camp and it's like a memories and photos and, and the videos are have been captured so beautifully in this film. But ultimately, you, there's a bigger story here. You set it up with the camp, but there's a, a bigger role to play. In the early pre-production stages, how did you guys understand, first of all, that you'd even have this material? Because I love the story that I read about the People's Video Theater of of how you discovered this footage. But so between the time that you reached out to Nicole and you guys first talked about the idea, how long did it take until you actually got that footage? I think it took about a, like a, was it six months or something maybe? Yeah, it's between six to nine months, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically, we had a great conversation. Jim showed me these incredible photographs. I was wild about the idea. I started reading about the movement. Jim actually loaned me a bunch of books um, to read about the history of the movement. And then, uh, you know, in, in a subsequent conversation, he mentioned this footage. You know, he said that uh, there was this tape floating around about the, the crabs outbreak that had shown on Manhattan cable television when when right when you were in college right yeah and uh and so um he said yeah i remember they took the porta pack because this was the very very first portable video you know they took this porta pack and strapped it on the back of my chair and handed me the camera and i filmed a camp tour and i was like you what <laughs> you know oh my god that's that's like filmmaker gold you know right so um, you know, I said, how long were they there? He said, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks. I'm not too sure. And so my heart started pounding. So I would just go home at night and, and look on the internet. And finally, somebody happened to digitize and throw into an archive, a set of old magazines, like sort of radical video maker magazines. And in the back of one of them, there was this little ad that said crabs outbreak at Camp Jened for the handicapped by the people's video theater. And that gave us the name, the full name of the group. And um, and so I was able to track down Howard Gutstadt um, and Ben Levine, but Howard happened to live just across the bridge from us in San Francisco. He's in Berkeley, right? Or where? He's he? in the city, in San Francisco. Oh, he's in the city? Okay. Yeah, and he was like midway through transferring those tapes at Bayback. Oh my gosh. In San Francisco. And so, you know, we just get this like magical hard drive and and that really shifted, you know, our, our idea of the film. Because then we... Then we realized, you know, we we have this experiential way to 
bring people into camp and kind of let the viewer go to camp themselves, you know, make friends, uh, become, become kind of a part of the community, the way that, you know, Jim is a, is a character and a guide into the story, uh, does too, right? Like Jim comes in, he has to figure things out. He has to make friends and, um, and become a part of the community. And so, yeah, that, that was really lit the, the fire, you know? What was it like for you, Jim, to see this footage? I imagine you 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 never seen it, right? No, no, I I hadn't. I had seen this um, this dub, uh, this VHS dub of their of the uh, crab epidemic at Camp Jeanette, right? Which you know, funny enough, you know, I'd be I was out in college, and my dad would call me once in a while, and he'd say, "Uh, your crab documentary's on the cable again," and. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah. I don't know if that's something you want to be known for, but obviously it, it captured like a day in the life of Kim Jeanette, right? I mean, it, it did actually. That uh, that exists on YouTube. Oh, okay. It, but it's like a capture from a TV set. And still, it was, uh, but uh, yeah, looking at those, those videos, I mean, I, how it's like you, you know, you always, uh, what is it? The, uh, what was that Jim Carrey uh, thing about they were, you know, this created world? What was that movie? Truman. Mm. The Truman oh, Show. Truman Show, sure, yeah. It's almost like finding like five reels from the Truman Show or something, you know? And it's like, right. that's not even the best analogy, but I guess the point being, it was very bittersweet. Yeah. It was remarkable to go back and see myself and these people that I knew and that I actually really, some of them I really, I know that had passed away. Mm-hmm. that I really missed. And so part of it was just like hoping I was going to see more of this person or that person. And Oh my God, there's Nancy, my girlfriend. Yeah. So up until that point, you know, a lot of understanding of the story of what it could be. But then when you got the footage, you then have some type of structure to kind of build your own narrative and your own story around. How long did it take you then? Did you first do an assembly of that to create a story? Or what was the next step? Did you go out and do interviews? How did, how did you start to structure now that you kind of had something to reference with this material? Well, Jim had always had this idea that there was a, a tie uh, between the liberating experience of the camp and folks the kind of exodus out to Berkeley um, of people from Jened and who became involved in the independent living movement and kind of recreating a world in Berkeley, you know, that was more like what they had found at Camp Jened. And so just in like researching, talking about it, talking with Judy Human, we started reaching out to Jim's friends and who he had been in contact with and some of whom he hadn't. And, uh, and we started to, and we actually talked to some academics who were researching the important, the importance of Camp Jeanette and a few other camps like it as sort of sites that helped to kind of spawn or instigate the disability rights movement in the seventies. And that gave us confidence that actually there could be a storyline that could build all the way up to the ADA, or we weren't quite sure exactly how far we were going to go with that. But, um, but as we researched too, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to raise money. Um, Sarah Boulder, Jim's wife was our producer and an incredible fundraiser. And we were able to get the resources to be able to hire archival folks to start digging into the archives. And the history has been really not tended to, um, or archived very well. And so it was a a Herculean task to find these sort of fragments of footage to be able to try to knit together a story that would follow our, you know, band of characters. We sometimes talked about it as 
you know, the breakfast club meets the times of Harvey Milk. Um, really wanted to feel like, you know, you've made your, you, you've made your camp friends and now you're following them through the history. But, um, but wasn't totally clear if we were going to be able to do that in a purely um, immersive, verite, feeling fashion until almost the end of editing, actually. We were still getting little fragments of archival that would fall in place. And we go, oh, look, Steve Hoffman was at the Victory Parade, you know, at, <laughs> at the 504. <laughs> you know, um, that incredible clip of Judy saying, um, you know, uh, I can't believe I still have to be thankful for an accessible bathroom. Those things fell in our lap at the very last minute. It was pretty extraordinary. You know, it just, it took so much kind of, um, I guess, faith and patience that that personal type of history that we wanted to relate, that we could pull it off in that way. Some of the footage, which was really just remarkable to watch for the first time for me was, you know, Willowbrook. <sighs> to me, this the, you know, I've never been aware. I mean, obviously like Geraldo <laughs> Rivera, I'm aware of, but not the Willowbrook story. And so as the first time experiencing that, and especially, you know, recognizing um, pockets of Berkeley, you know, which I've walked those streets in a different time, a different place, people's own just perspective on what the priorities are for our society it was a very different time and it was very recent and, and it kept I, I there were many different times that i just like there were things that people said that really stood out um some of them early on in camp janet when um i guess all the kids around the table it was you're speaking to her not about her which to me just kind of struck a chord in a way that i it, it really showed that the humility and the empathy that was not being allowed to so many, I mean, if not all of, of these kids and just people with disabilities, it just seemed like, Jim, I'd love for you to share your own sense of uh, by going back and retelling the story and, and kind of looking at the milestones. What have you taken away? What's your perspective now on society's perspective on the disability movement? Really, the, the kind of the, the part of the story that really starts bringing back memories for me is like that time when I was 15 and also like being a senior in high school when I got my first car. And, you know, this is a time with no ramps up to the train, you know, to the train platform. And uh, in Hartsdale, I grew up in just north of New York City and or any kind of handicapped parking spots. And so, you know, things were a little bit difficult. Uh, and Really, you know, just knowing that, you know, I had to, any time I want to go somewhere new, I, I needed to call ahead and ask, are you wheelchair accessible? Or, and it was even like, what is that? Are you on the first floor? Do mm. you have stairs into your place? It wasn't even like people had to grok what wheelchair access really quite meant. And so I, you know, I think about those times where, not only was the world really hard to get around, but that there that basically you felt like uh, that you weren't important, that this was your lot in life, and that you know just take it or leave it, and and so and what Cam Jeanette did for me by meeting Judy Human was give me an example that there there we could fight back and we could do things. Uh, and we could actually make change and that and so what I see today is a much easier landscape to get around it I mean New York City's a lot harder sure than Berkeley or Oakland and uh, even San Francisco I mean, even San Francisco is a lot better than New York 
in regards to me being a wheelchair user, being able to get around. And, um, and the fact of the matter is, is that now, you know, when a new movie theater is built, that I can actually get a really great seat in the house. Mm-hmm. And that, um, or that, you know, occasionally you see a restaurant that has adopted universal design, which is, it's basically making the place accessible to everyone without it looking like an after or being an afterthought. An afterthought, yeah. It's all part of the architecture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's, a, it's a mode that actually, in the long run, it works for everybody. And so, uh, and that change in society from when, you know, over the last uh, 45, 50 years is remarkable. But I also know that those are only a couple of smaller victories embedded in a much larger struggle that still continues today. Yeah. And that there's still, you know, you know, stigma and fear around disability and that there are there's rampant unemployment in the disabled community um, and that the support services that um, are available to for people uh, to have in-home health care so they can get up in the morning and go to work uh, and such vary from state to state and are not at it, you know, barely adequate for those that have fairly good um, situations. And again, it's like, well, if you think that we don't have anything to offer in society, if you think that we're basically a waste of resources uh, and no one's shoving you up against the wall to tell you to, you know, change your mind, you know, um, it's always going to stay that way. Mm-hmm. Two of the other things that kind of came out, which was the kids saying or them saying the world always wants us dead. The world doesn't want us around, which is a terrible mindset. But it's just the truth of, of how society rather out of sight, out of mind, which was the the Willowbrook kind of, you know, solution. I think Judy said it, you know, you can pass a law, but until you change society's attitudes, that law won't mean much, which I'm so happy you guys captured that story of the immense amount of pressure that the community put on Congress law and everyone else involved. And so taking a step back, when you guys have this story and you look at the all the all the touch points of what you want the audience to uh, walk away with, when you were looking for a partner like Higher Ground, what were you thinking was going to be the best kind of scenario, the best way to, to share this message? Because Netflix, obviously, as we're finding now in this new kind of landscape of quarantine, everyone's at home and looking for ways to experience new, these stories. But how did Higher Ground come into the picture and what did that mean to you guys? Was that early on or was that much later? We had sort of a clip reel put together um, and we were working on an assembly when um, our executive producer, Howard Gertler, who we were really fortunate to have brought on, he did How to Survive a Plague and Short Bus and he works both in the documentary and in the scripted space and he's just brilliant, but he also um, really deeply loves movement stories, which of course How to Survive a Plague is an amazing example of. And I, and you know, he also worked on Wet Hot American Summer, so it's like, you know, he's <laughs> a perfect fit uh, for right. what we were trying to accomplish. And he read about Higher Ground and he thought, wow, you know, this might be of interest to them because Judy worked in the um, Obama administration at the State Department as a special advisor on disability rights, international disability rights. And um, 
And also the film has these themes that are, you know, resonant with the work and values of the Obamas, the grassroots organizing, the sort of coalition building, young people changing the world. It's a bipartisan story. So um, through our sales agent, we were able to get the real to Priya Swami Nathan, who had just accepted um, the job of running Higher Ground. And, um, and we were really excited because, you know, all along we wanted the film to reach beyond the choir and we didn't want it to be seen as a eat your vegetables kind of documentary. And we certainly, you know, I think made a film that isn't, isn't that, um, but we, we wanted it to have a platform that would, would really reach folks who, you know, don't know there's a disability community out there or a disability culture out there or, or unaware of this history and really try to make a shift in the cultural landscape. And so Priya, loved the reel and came up and spent a bunch of time with us. And we had this fantastic conversation with her in which we realized that the value she saw in the film was the same thing we saw. You know, at one point she said to us, you have a culture moving project. And Jim wrote that down and pinned it on the wall of our, our edit mm-hmm. because to inspire us while we worked. And so, you know, shortly after that phone call, she, she called back and said, we, um, we really want to partner with you on the project and the president and Mrs. Obama feel the same way. And, uh, yeah, and it, it, we, we hoped that what would happen is basically what's happening, which is pretty extraordinary. So uh, for you, Jim, to know that it's been, your message has been received. How did you want to reconnect with your subjects? Cause there's so many wonderful stories and little anecdotes that would have only could have been told through like all this wonderful footage that you got, but, what did this now mean for your project? Cause it was like a small conversation that you guys had and you were developing this. But now that I think you have the support of higher grounds, it seems that the sky's the limit for a project like this. It was really the combination of uh, higher ground and Netflix. That was this um, just incredible opportunity that, um, that, that the Obamas have such a beloved following uh, rightfully so, mm-hmm. and that Netflix has this reach to about 190 countries. <laughs> that's you, you, you know that you've got the platform, and you've got people that are supporting you that will help make sure that the world will know about your your film. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how it gets better than that. Yeah. I really, really don't. And I think that early on in, 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 I remember one day I came into the editing room and Nicole had been working with, uh, I think it was Andy Gersh, one of our editors, and they showed me um, a scene they'd been working on. And I really just kind of, well, I don't know what the wheelchair equivalent is of taking a step back. But I kind of <laughs> went, oh, my God, I think that maybe people will now understand. And there wasn't really an end to that sentence. Understand what? I mean, it's understanding who we are and what our experience is and, and how all the representations or, uh, of people with disabilities um, have been skewed in such a in, in such a damaging way mm-hmm. and that people would see us not for uh, as, as who we are. 
and his and his wonderful people. Some of the little things I would never expect would be so revealing was like even like the moment with Larry El um, Allison, the uh, camp director of digging holes, <laughs> like digging holes. Like the pool. Like I hope I hope someone's gonna fall on this base. Or like little things that just show how that community was built. That it was. I mean, the time period too was. You know, it's like uh, let's be honest. I, I was I wasn't alive in the '70s, so for me to revisit through this lens was was really just remarkable. But when you did go through the footage, what got left behind and what was like, no, this is fine. It, it's really funny and silly, and it's a it's a nice kind of moment of cap like this little thing happened that got captured. But of all the f how much how much total footage was there, and then how did you kind of navigate what made it into the film? Well, I think total there were there's five and a half hours of the people's video theater footage at Camp Jeanette. And that's, you know, comprises 40 minutes um, of the documentary. Okay. And so in trying to edit that down, you know, there were a lot of really great fun scenes that we cut out. There was, you know, hijinks at the swimming pool. And <laughs> um, there's, you know, this kind of, um, I think it was like a, what was it, Jim? Like a, not a film class. What did they call the, like an AV class or something? Or the camera and drama club or something. Camera and drama club. <laughs> yeah. So there was the camera and drama club and there's little glimpses of that at the beginning when you meet Carl and Ellie and Jean at the beginning. But that was a whole scene that, that could have played out. There were a number of things in there that were very, very lovely and funny or, or whatever, but it really was this like long, um, very engaging and kind of challenging and uh, communal process of Jim and I and our editors. Um, we were lucky to have three amazing editors working with us on the project. Um, we had uh, Andrew Gersh and Eileen Meyer as as editors and then Mary Lampson as a co-editor and with her this other incredibly talented editor Shane Hofelt. And all of us kind of tried to recreate the spirit of, um, of Camp Jeanette, I think in the edit room and just like really trust that we were gonna find our way to a structure. And so even though that first 40 minutes of the film feels very free flowing and <laughs> yeah. very fair day, and we've even had people say like, did you edit that material? You know, it's like, <laughs> yes, over a year, you know, because it's actually very like painstakingly constructed to kind of walk you through the process of making you feel like you've like you've arrived at camp and slowly you feel like a community is being formed over time. And that's what we were trying to achieve. So, um, you know, it's little things like, uh, like the segue from um, Lionel talking about experiencing racism in the deep South, Jim's counselor, segueing to the um, one-time blues, you know, which is this sort of, political feeling song actually it feels as though the the kid who's who's playing that song and and using a chair for drums is is responding in a way to kind of like the shared oppression that lionel is referencing and and so um you know all those things kind of add up to and have meaning and um and it was just a slow process of kind of saying like kind of finding where there was meaning in putting two scenes up against each other and where, where the scenes had a meaning that was greater than what just simply what they represented. Mm. Something to me that I wasn't expecting was the use of subtitles, but he's like, especially like, like with Denise and Neil Jacobson who, you know, to me as an audience, like all I want to do is just be patient and listen and hear their story. And, and then there was a moment when um, there were no subtitles shown for Nancy, if that's right. Do you remember that moment? 
Nancy Rosenblum, yeah. Yeah, so I was wondering what was the reason for not having subtitles on Nancy, but then for instances of like Denise and Neil, there were. Like, how did you guys decide? Because the use of subtitles serves a completely, I felt like it played a new a, a character in a sense of allowing the audience to connect with, with the, these characters, with their stories. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think that if you think about people who have speech that's difficult to understand, um, that you think about it just as a thick accent. Yeah. And that, you know, to an extent, the more that you're kind of with somebody, you know what words they're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and and if, actually, for me, that was a really important thing for me to kind of, as a young young guy, to kind of kind of grok into it and um, relate to it. But Nicole, please. <laughs> yeah, I'm just smiling, thinking of something that we did leave on the cutting room floor, which was this great line when Lionel was talking about that in, the, in an interview, how as a counselor, he had to learn to be patient and listen. And he kind of leaned into the camera and, and said, you just have to listen, Mother Effer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe That's we took right. that out. But, um, but yeah, I mean, w with the subtitles, there were two things we wanted to achieve. One is because, um, you know, the nature of the speech of some of the characters with CP is that it takes them longer to say things. Sure. When you use the standard subtitle treatment, two things happen then. You're, but one, you're looking down at the bottom of the screen all the time and it gets tiring because you're not connecting with the person. And two, you're giving away the, the joke. I mean, yeah. you know, Neil and Dennis in particular are, are so hilarious and they have their, their words are so exquisite that like, you know, giving away the punchline and then making the audience wait for it to actually get said was just not working at all. And so we worked with our um, associate producer and assistant editor, Lauren Schwartzman, and we said, you know, can we do something different here? And we had this idea of kind of putting the text up on the screen in a way that it would feel a little bit more like a beat poem, you know, of the mm, Yeah, sure. And also because, you know, like I said, I mean, well, Denise is a writer, but both of them just have really beautiful language. So we thought the words themselves would really um, bring something into the equation. And then to answer your question about Nancy Rosenblum, um, that scene when Jim and I saw it, that's the scene that I remember thinking when we looked at the archival for the very first time together, this is going to be something. Like if we can bring an audience in and bring them up to that moment, and that's the moment where they realize they now see the world in a different way, and they realized, and I'm talking about like a non-disabled audience, that they would realize that they had um, been discounting people or not listening to people and that they would see the power in this community coming together and listening to each other and trusting each other in the way that, that, um, that people do, that that would be something. So we did try to build up all, all along from the very beginning, we were trying to build that first act up to that moment. And we didn't want to put subtitles there because we knew that the experience for the viewer of sitting and watching Nancy try to talk and not being able to understand her and trying to figure out how to understand her would put them in the shoes of the the kids sitting around the table. And then when they recognized how patient and loving all those kids were, it would teach them something about, you know, about themselves. So that was why we made that decision. Oh, that's great. I, like I said, it was unexpected. But when I understood, obviously, after that interaction happened, like you said, that was a jumping off point. Jim, did you feel when you were a camper there, like, did you feel that sentiment that there or were you just a camper? Did you were you around a lot of those opportunities when people were talking or having these types of discussions? 
round table was really kind of grew out of um, the People's Video Theater when they first got introduced to us. They said, look, um, you know, we're here and help us, you know, help us make a film about your camp. Tell us what you want to do. Tell us how you want to use this technology. And somebody had the bright idea of saying, we'd love to do a message to our parents. Okay. And um, so it wasn't like we were having these rap sessions, you know, every every day at noon. <laughs> right. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was an opportunity for us to uh, really kind of um, express ourselves in a group to the cameras. And, uh, and I think that, so things didn't happen that formally in that kind of a situation. But Judy talks about how she and, uh, and other campers in her bunk would talk in the evening about, you know, how there could be a better world. And that certainly was a time of, you know, women's lib and black power and all these other and gay rights that were just really kind of percolating to the top. And that, you know, why we, we need one of those for ourselves. We can't get in the buses. We can't use public transportation. And um, and I, I would say that Judy, who's just an extraordinarily wonderful and motivating person, you know, those conversations weren't really happening in the boys' bunk. <laughs> they, I mean, if, if I were to be honest about things, right. um, you know, but when I spent time with Judy, you know, it was a very profound, had a very profound effect on me. Yeah. And it really it ignited something in me uh, that made me want to get involved politically uh, in disabled rights and independent living rights. Fantastic. Something that I really I love was the dance between tracks from the 70s and that time period and your composer Barry McCreary's score. The selection of music tracks in this film, I was just like, it felt it reminded me of when I saw Forrest Gump. And every song was just so delicately put in. Uh, especially, obviously, at the very end, the closing track you have, which was, uh, I guess, was Sugar, Sugar Mountain or... Sugar, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How did you guys go about navigating, working with Bear? How did he get on board? And then how did you guys figure out which of the tracks you wanted to uh, utilize throughout? Well, um, I had uh, worked on Unrest, Jen Brea's documentary. Mm -hmm. um, and Bear was the composer on that. So, And I was the sound designer and mixer on that project. So... I was familiar with him, and um, just kind of in the in the long run, after looking and kind of talking to a bunch of people, um, we wound up working with him. Um, but the music for the film um, was very much a collaborative effort. You know, uh, you know, I had a few ideas here and there. Andy did, Nicole. <laughs> It's just, um, you know, you had freedom, right? You brought in freedom to the project, right? Yeah. Richie yeah, Haven. The very beginning, you know, the very beginning, the, the, the Woodstock soundtrack seemed worth listening to. And just, you yeah. know, listening to that, it felt like, oh, God, there's that, like, you know, kind of mayhemic joy that the camp gets across. <laughs> um, and, you know, from the beginning, we wanted to make, to really make you feel the way that Jim told me he felt, which was like, all of a sudden you're at the camp. You're not like observing mainstream culture of the time. You're actually living mainstream culture yep. of the time. 
see with all those fantastic jam sessions mm-hmm. of the great dead and all of that. And then, you know, the joy you experienced through that music was really, um, obviously, you know, helps propel Jim's narrative, his own narrative. So, yeah, it, it was really like from the beginning, we really wanted the film to, to be infused with, uh, with music and, and spirit. In fact, that, that tape that, um, that the jam session to trucking um, was on. Also, there were a few Neil Young songs, like Down by the River and Helpless. You know, so there, there was this organic sense of, of Neil Young mm-hmm. um, in, our, in our film. Yeah, but it was like a random that I, I happened to be cooking dinner and listening to a 70s radio station while we were cutting mm. and heard Sugar Mountain. And it's a particular recording of it. It's a live at Canterbury House, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. And it's um and it's I hadn't heard that recording of that song before. And it really just jumped out to me as having this gentle, um, beautiful, evocative feeling that felt to me like that scene at the end of the uh, film where, where the Genetians reunite at the old campsite and are trying to go back to their youth and can't quite, which is what the song is about. Mm. It was a beautiful moment. It was really well crafted. A lot of the, a lot of the things that I appreciated were just things that I wouldn't expect to be moved by, which is your work with Scott Grossman, who did, I guess, the opening and all the the motion graphics for the film. Whenever I watch a documentary, I'm waiting for the motion graphics. I'm waiting for the animation sequence. <laughs> <laughs> you guys did it beautifully, and I, I thought it was a wonderful uh, use uh, of it. What was your approach to using animations or other visuals? I mean, we definitely wanted the whole film to feel really organic and kind of in the spirit of the people's video theater footage. We didn't we didn't want to put anything on top of that that would feel contrived, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so Scott Grossman's work, um, you know, I've always admired because I feel like it it feels like something that just kind of naturally fits in to the frame, you know? Um, he had done a, such a beautiful job with these very organic feeling kind of graceful graphics for Audrey and Daisy that I really admired. And, um, and luckily he also had a feeling for the era, but we initially did not have the idea of having a big opening title sequence. And it kind of came out of trying to solve a problem, which was how do we tease that, the story might go beyond the camp without um, without actually taking you there to the future and backing up because we very much wanted the film to have a structure that would feel like a stone being thrown in the water and then you see the ripples out from that and the stone being that experience of Camp Jeanette. And so if we, if we too much foreshadowed the <laughs> piece of the film, we felt that would be ruined. And so we had the idea of bringing in Scott and creating something that was sort of a um, a scrapbook that hinted at that movement part of the story um, without really telling you what it is. And and uh, and it seemed to strike the right balance. And we thought he did a great job. I mean, these are things that you go in and you always wonder how a film's going to start off. And it was such a wonderful way of a, it sets the mood, obviously music, if it doesn't do it, then the visuals will. And it was, it was a great, yeah, it was, it was really wonderful. Um, I want to ask you now about your sound job. So Jim, being with your experience, and now you're wearing the filmmaker hat, how did you want to collaborate with your sound team? How did it work from production through post? How did you enlist this crew that you brought along? Because you have a wonderful sound department. Uh, how, yeah, how did, how did you go about it? Well, um, you know, fortunately, having um, started Berkeley Sound Artists, which is uh, now uh, merged with this company, Immersive Sound, which is 
uh, run by uh, Jacob Bloomfield Misrash. Um, there's a lot of the people that I had on staff that are still there, like Dan Olmstead doing mixing. And but there, you know, it's such a wonderful team. And you know, uh, like our sound designer, Bijan Sharifi, he and I have worked together for five, six years. And you know, he and it's uh, and so we have a shorthand. You know, and it's like, yeah, I need hot bugs in this scene here. It's like, no. And, you know, I know what hot bugs is, and so is he. So, and, um, uh, and you know, the other folks that are working there who really, um, plus it was a film that I was making, and I think there was a, there was a, there was a little extra love. <laughs> Really, you know that that beautiful shot of Jim in the Berkeley rep that you get to about towards the end of the film, and and you see Jim actually kind of like plugging the cables into the patch bay and all of that. Jim, I think you felt some tension around not wanting to give them like this too Herculean of a task in terms of layering and sound effects to every shot, and you were mindful of our budget and everything, and so they were like well, we'd like to put some sound effects there. And he said, oh, you don't have to do that. And they were like, are you kidding? We have footage of Jim Lebrecht, you know, doing sound design, like in the, in the 70s. We're not going to put the sound effects in it. Yeah. And so they did. They just they just really uh, brought so much love into it. And, and Jim was really insistent on all the wheelchair sounds being really accurate, mm. like you know, wheelchairs on gravel, wheelchairs um, that would have been the wheelchairs of the time, you know, push chairs versus power chairs. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. But then, you know, what they and Jim did just really made a huge difference. Like when you get to that scene in CIL and all of a sudden you hear this like buzzing sound of all these power chairs, you know, you you get this audio feeling that the world has changed and there's that the power chairs are bringing liberation to all these people who are making a new world for themselves out in Berkeley at the center for independent living. And it was just awesome actually to watch you all work together and to feel that come to life. So when, when did you lock picture and what was it like from there on out from your Sundance premiere? I, well, it's a we back time in this. I know that we basically kind of delivered like right before new year's. Okay. And uh, the Sundance premiere was about the 23rd of January. Um, but dang, when did we lock picture? We locked picture right before Thanksgiving. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you were able to enjoy Thanksgiving is what you're saying. Yeah, actually. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> Some of us, our, our post producer was, you know, I don't know how much she enjoyed Thanksgiving, but yeah. Um, some- it's got a little break, yeah. And w- w- from there on out, between then and your premiere, once you lock your picture, uh, was your sound team working in parallel with with your picture department, or how did you guys manage that? Uh, yeah, I mean the the sound, you know, we had a you know an offline version, and you know everybody could you know just work away, and then uh, we went to Los Angeles and worked with different by design to do all the the uh, color and. And and they were really great. I mean, they were really wonderful to work with. And you know, I just, in fact, I just, I think there's a different kind of look when you've, you're in a movie theater and you're having this digital projection mm-hmm. versus seeing it on your like, if you're lucky enough to have a 4K monitor in your in your living room. And my God, it looks sharp. Mm. 
I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I feel weird kind of saying, wow, you know, you know, with our film, but it was just so vivid. Um, um, so uh, anyway, that was a, they worked really hard for us. There was a lot of work to do because, you know, we had to mosaic together these scenes out of these little scraps of archival. So in, in one thing that looks like a verite scene of, you know, the, the protesters going into uh, Maldonado's office in the 504 building, uh, sure, yeah. you know, there might be like six different sources. And some of them were like from a VHS tape we found in, in a box, you know, in the basement of some archive. And then one was actually film footage from some newsreel. And then, you know, so it really was like a, a, a big job to try to um, balance everything out. And, um, and we found ourselves, you know, sometimes making things look better and sometimes making things look worse <laughs> just to try to, um, <laughs> to give them a consistency, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. scene. And, and so was the Sundance screening the first time that a lot of the participants in your film had, were going to be seen themselves or the film itself? Or did you share before then? We shared it with um, with most people, or at least the people who had major major roles okay. in the film. Um, you know, I think there was there there was definitely well, Denise Jacobson, for instance, worked with us as a writing consultant on the project, mm-hmm. um, and so we we showed um, a version to she and Neil. We we showed a, a, a version, I think, a couple of versions to Judy Human um, because we needed her to vet if we were telling the history accurately you know, sure. <laughs> from her perspective and things like that. So a lot of people had seen, uh, seen chunks of it. We had a very emotional screening, I think right before we picture locked, maybe a few weeks before at, at Jim's house with Anne and uh, her husband and, and some folks coming together and seeing it. That was um, one of the more powerful um, work in progress screenings I've ever been to, you know, just because, I don't think that anybody had the idea that the story was going to be brought to life in as cinematic of a manner as, as it as it was, and uh, it was just really emotionally um, powerful. But there, there was nothing that could have prepared any of us for what it was like to be the opening night film in the Eccles Theater at, at Sundance. And um, we had this idea because about eight people from the film came. Okay. Wow. And um, and. And so, yeah, so we had like a, like a, an occupation army, uh, you know, on the streets of Park City. Ah. And, um, <laughs> and we had this idea that we would get everybody out on stage for the Q&A, but that it would take a while um, to get everyone out on stage. And so that what we might do is do that during the uh, credit roll. And so we found out later that from the audience's perspective, because it was this completely packed house, yeah. that that they could just see the sort of shadows of everyone coming out on stage. And then when the lights came on, there was like this chorus line of you know <laughs> everybody from the film. And it felt like this movement wow. that, you know, sad, so many people don't even know existed, but that's so such a critical part of us history was finally being seen and acknowledged. And I think it was just like a, a really electric moment for, for all of us. And also for the audience, it was, it was, I mean, just a incredibly unforgettable moment. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Jim, I can't imagine a lifetime. No one can ever walk in anyone's shoes, but in a way, I think people have a little better picture of the incredible struggles that everyone has had. What does it mean to you now, knowing that you've had opportunity to get this story out? It's only Friday. This film's been out for two days, and I'm, I'm so excited. I continue to tell my friends, 
go check it out. Go check it out because I, I feel like it's a story that is just timeless. What have you now taken away between the Sundance screening and now that it's been online? Well, I, I have to say, indeed, you know, I think that we all have struggles in our lives. And whether you're disabled or not, everybody has those. And on the other side of the coin, we all have our joy and happiness. And um, and and I think that that is such an important part of the story, is that there is joy in coming together with community and finding kinship with people. There's joy in being able to kind of have inside jokes or slang with somebody. There's, uh, there's joy in experiencing kind of the culture of the artist of your community. So, um, I mean, that, is, that isn't quite the answer to your question, but I, you know, I just wanted to say that life uh, for people with disabilities isn't just about struggle. It's about love. It's about babies. <laughs> it's about um, achievement. It's about simple moments. Hmm. And being able to, but the most important thing is being able to have, striving for, to have a life of your own choosing. Hmm. That's, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or this Paralympian, although there's some fantastic Paralympians, but you, you know, it's, it's you know, it's that freedom of of self-determination that we all fight for uh, in our lives and that how when you are when you are able to achieve that how joyful that is one of the lines that was said the country is waking up i feel like it was said then and and it's even more so saying now i feel like there's an incredible outpouring of people waking up to so many different aspects of what it means to be a human what it means to be a community and a storyteller i'm so happy you guys we're able to capture this story. It, hopefully, this is just the beginning of a conversation, a, a continuation, um, because I feel like it's not anywhere near complete. And uh, the more we talk about it, obviously, the more people are going to have a voice in it. And I think it's incredible for you guys to capture the history. And I'm really happy you guys did. For anyone, obviously, who wants to follow Jim and his work, Berkeley Sound Artist is a wonderful place to start. Nicole, where should people keep track of what you're up to? Um, I'm... <laughs> If you're not if you're not socially inclined, that's fine too. Point. Yeah. <laughs> website coming soon. Netflix has got a website for the film. And uh, and one of the great things there is that if you go to uh, the menu for details, you can find a script of the film. Oh wow. Okay. It allows people who are deaf blind to experience the film. They can download that and access the film that way. Um, and then we have um, a robust um, impact campaign that we've been developing over the for a while now. And we have a website, which is cripcamp.com. And there people can either sign up to kind of stay in touch with us. Uh, also, there's um, information there about how to hold a, a screening, uh, discussion guides, and, we we have and we're developing some educational materials also, so there's a wealth of um, uh, uh, so the, between the two websites there's a lot to look at. That's great. I'm glad you brought up the descriptive transcript. Uh, that's super important, and just more people should be aware of this film, and I'm sure they will be as time goes on. But um, once again, congratulations, you guys. It's not it's not easy making a film, and it's not easy making a film about a subject matter which 
isn't flashy and doesn't, you know, have a star power or doesn't, you know. I mean, what do you mean? You have pretty good star power, Joe. Sorry, mean? sorry, sorry. <laughs> Misspoke. <laughs> you looked very good on camera, I will say. So thank you guys so much. A star was born. Yeah, a star was born. <laughs> thank you guys so much. It was, it was such a pleasure. Thank you. It was great to talk to you too.